Lord, thanks again for the great ways you bless us. And I pray that as we look in your word this morning, each one of us would take away those things you want for us, Lord, just that word of encouragement or exhortation or reproof, whatever it is, help each of us to get the things you want for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you guys ever had a, uh, the experience where you get what you want and then you decide maybe it's not really what you wanted? Or especially I'm thinking of a scenario like this. You want something... And so you kind of fight for it. Maybe you fight a sibling or a parent or a friend. You know, you're going to get your way. You're going to get what you want. And so whatever the cost, you get your way. You get what you wanted. And then afterwards, you kind of figure out, maybe I didn't really want this because in the process of getting what you wanted, you lost something that was more important than what you got. You know, sometimes we're consumed with the image or with the picture of this thing that we think if if I could get that or that's my right or whatever, if I can get that, that's important to me and I'll do whatever it takes to get it. And then you get it and realize you lost something in the process that wasn't worth losing. You got something, you gained, but you really lost. That's what we're talking about this morning in John 12. And the truth is that on this planet in which death is the norm, Jesus says in the passage this morning that if you want to live, you got to die. That's what John 12 this morning is about. By the way, you remember just putting some things in order. John 10, Jesus talked about being a shepherd to Israel, kind of big picture. John 11 was about Lazarus, his friend, and Mary and Martha and raising Lazarus from the dead. And then, hi guys. And then John 12, the first eight verses we looked at last week were about this extravagant worship that Mary poured out on Jesus When Jesus was back in the city of Bethany where he'd raised Lazarus from the dead, he was at a dinner in his honor. And so we're kind of continuing on from there. We're in verses 9 through 26 this morning. And by the way, we'll look at 9 through 26. I'll only comment briefly on most of these verses. We've looked at some of these verses already last month related to Easter and Palm Sunday. So we'll just touch on those. We'll actually land in the last three verses. That's where we'll spend the bulk of our time. Starting at verse 9, John 12, the large crowd of the Jews, when he learned that he was there, Jesus there in Bethany, they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. These guys are consistent here. You remember we've said the scriptures tend to portray these characters in the same light. You know, Mary's always at Jesus' feet. Martha's always serving. Well, the priests, the Jewish leaders, they're always trying to do the same thing. They're trying to kill somebody. They're plotting someone's death. And you remember before when Jesus raised Lazarus, they didn't question that a man had raised someone from the dead. It was just that Jesus was getting in their way, so they plotted his murder. And now here's poor Lazarus. He's the guy that Jesus raises from the dead. And their first thought is, we don't care about that either. He's a poster boy for Jesus, so we're going to kill him too. They're consistent, absolutely consistent in their response. Lazarus is on their hit list now too. Verse 12, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, remember this is the Passover week, the week of Passover, come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna. 
God save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding the young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. This was the passage we looked at, part of the passages we looked at on Palm Sunday. They were crying out, praise to Jesus, Hosanna on one hand, but also literally, save us, bring in the kingdom, kick out these Romans, bring in your kingdom now. This was the high point. You guys remember, too, in John's Gospel, we've seen this all along. There's this... uh, uh, John paints not only these big portraits, but he, play, he paints uh, kind of uh, the dual nature of things. Uh, this is true in his gospel, but you look at uh, 1 John, it's the same thing. So there's always this dual response to, John, uh, to Jesus in John's gospel. So some people believe and some don't. Some want to believe in him, some want to kill him. If you look in John's first epistle, you see this multitude of contrasts. There's darkness and light, there's love and hate. Anyway, it goes through the list. This has been true in John's gospel, and it's true here as well. Some people accept Jesus, some reject him. This is the high point of acceptance, this Palm Sunday, when the crowds are cheering for Jesus, but of course it's short-lived because he's crucified before the week's out. Verse 16, these things his disciples didn't understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. You know, as you read the Gospels, you routinely see that it says about the disciples they didn't understand what Jesus meant or they didn't understand what was going on. And that's what John says here, too. And it's easy to think that these guys were dull or slow-witted. And actually, sometimes Jesus reproves them because he thinks they should understand more than they do at the time. But, you know, I think more often than not, they're just like us. They're there... They're witnessing what's going on. They're hearing the words spoken. They're part of what's going on. And they still don't get the implications. They don't understand. And it's hard to say Jesus has been telling them uh, that he's going to be crucified. And they, they still don't understand what that means. So there's a sense in which even though they're part of the events that are going on, and even though Jesus has told them these things, even though they're seeing... Zechariah fulfilled, they still can't put all the pieces of the puzzle together. They just don't quite get how all this works or how all this comes together. And, uh, you know, before you uh, castigate them, you know, how often is God doing something in your life? And at the time, you just feel confused. And God may be saying it should be a little clearer to you what's going on. But it's only in hindsight you look back and you say, okay, now I see what God was doing. But at the time, I just couldn't put the pieces together. That's exactly what's going on for the disciples here. They're part of the events. They hear the words. They know something about what's going on, but they're unable to put it all together. By the way, it says until Jesus is glorified. That's until they get the Holy Spirit. Jesus' crucifixion, death, resurrection, and the Spirit comes. And you remember Jesus said, when you get the Spirit, this stuff will make sense. You'll remember and you'll understand. So the people who were with him, verse 17, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. For this reason also the people went out and met him, that is, on this Palm Sunday, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Of course, they want to minimize Jesus, keep their agenda going. It's not working, at least not on this Palm Sunday. John switches gears entirely at verse 20, and he brings in the Greeks. 
the Gentiles. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These came to Philip, who was, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. Remember, that's up in the north around the Sea of Galilee. They began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus, or we want an audience with Jesus. Philip comes and tells Andrew. Andrew and Philip come and tell Jesus. Jesus answered, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, that is, to be crucified and to rise. Truly, truly, uh, in Greek this would be amen, amen. This means he's saying something you can count on. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. First, as to who these guys are, who are the Greeks? Uh, the Greek term is uh, Hellenists, or you know, these guys are from Helena. This would be the old name for the Greeks. In the scripture, it's hard to know, though. Greeks is like, uh, could be people literally from the area of Greece, but it could also mean just Gentiles. So all we know for sure is these guys aren't Jews. They're Greeks. They're Gentiles of one stripe or another. They're probably what the Jews considered God-fearers. Later on in Acts 10, Cornelius is called God-fearing, or in the Gospels, when the Jews want to tell Jesus, do a favor for this guy, he fears God, they're putting this Gentile in the category of someone who recognizes that the God of Israel is God. They're probably not circumcised. The difference between a God-fearer and what was called a proselyte, a proselyte was a Gentile who had converted to Judaism and, and obeyed all the law of Moses. And so these guys would have been circumcised and they would have enjoyed anything Jewish men could have in the religious performance. These guys probably couldn't go past the court of the Gentiles. So as they come in for the Passover, they could come into Jerusalem and worship. But if you remember on the Temple Mount, there was a wall. And that was a partition beyond which Gentiles could not pass. There was a death penalty if a Gentile went inside that wall. By the way, archaeologically, we have signs off of that wall to this day that say, don't come past this point. If you're a Gentile, it's death. This is what the Jews later on stir up the Jewish group on the Temple Mount against Paul. They said Paul brought Gentiles past the court of the Gentiles into the court of the women, the next closest link, the next closest place in the temple, on the Temple Mount to the temple itself. So whatever these guys are, whatever nationality they are, they're not Jews, but they're God-fearers who have come to worship at the Passover. Verse 21, it says, they came to Philip. We have no idea why is this important. By the way, and several things in here. We don't know why it's important, but John says it, and he's specific. They came to Philip. Why? Well, maybe a few possibilities. Philip's a, it's a Greek name. So if they heard someone call Philip by name, they might have thought, this is somebody like us. He's got a Greek name. Maybe he's Greek. So they go to Philip. Or John tells us Philip's from Bethsaida on the Sea of Galilee. If you remember later in John's Gospel, when Peter's down in the courts of the priest, the guys say, we know you're with Jesus. Why? Because your voice, your speech pattern tells us you're from up north, near Galilee. If these were Gentiles who lived near Galilee, they might have recognized Philip's 
accent. You know, the same way we know someone's from the east or the northeast or the south, whatever. Jews within Israel recognize distinct forms of speech even within Israel. So maybe these guys heard Philip's accent and thought he must be from up in the north, maybe neighbors where they live. Lots of Gentiles up around the Sea of Galilee. For whatever reason, we're not sure why, they choose Philip. Philip becomes the messenger. He goes to Andrew. Andrew and Philip go to Jesus. This is, how, this is what we know for sure. Before we go on and take on the rest of this text, though, let me point this out too. John uses this verse about the Greeks as a hinge. He really doesn't follow up on the, on the Greeks. But their entrance into the story becomes a pivot off of which he moves the scene and what Jesus wants to talk about. And if you think about this, <clears throat> near the end of Jesus' life, a group of Gentiles come seeking him, while the Jewish leaders reject him and plot his death. These elements of this story, near the end of Jesus' life, Gentiles seek him, Jewish leaders reject him and plot his death. Do those elements sound familiar? Wise men from the east, Gentiles seek the Messiah, Jewish leaders, Herod rejects him and plots his death. Exactly the same elements at Jesus' death related to his birth. Same elements of the story, exactly the same. And John seems to be bringing this in at this point to remind us of something. You remember in John's Gospel, John wrote, he tells us in John 20, that he wrote the Gospel so that you could hear the story about Jesus and believe in him, and through faith, through believing, you'd be saved. And if you go back to the very first chapter in John 1, verse 12, it says, Jesus came to his own, the Jews, and his own received him not, but as many as received him became children of God. He gave the power to become children of God. As many as received him. John's making sure that everybody knows the gospel is for anyone. And so... It's funny, Jesus, we don't know what he did or didn't do with these Greeks. He doesn't tell us. But John uses this as his hinge to remind us right here, as Jesus talks about life and death, that salvation was for everyone. It wasn't just for the Jewish nation. It was for everyone. And just as Gentiles sought Israel's Messiah at his birth, Gentiles are seeking Israel's Messiah just before his death, and salvation that Israel's Messiah brings is not just for Israel, it's for everyone. In fact, the most memorable, certainly the best known verse in all the Bible, John 3.16 says that God loved the world and he gave his own son so that whoever believes in him, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. You remember in John 4, Jesus spends time at a well so he can meet a woman who's not a Jew. She's a Samaritan. And salvation comes to the woman at the well and to the Samaritans who aren't Jewish. And then in John 10, which we looked at not long ago, <clears throat> Jesus was speaking in that rich language of the shepherd, bringing up passages from Ezekiel, talking about being Israel's shepherd, the shepherd that God promised he would send to the nation. And in the context of being the shepherd for Israel, Jesus says what? I've got other sheep. They're not from this flock. And I've got to bring them in too. And there will be one flock with one shepherd. And John seems to be, just the way this, this passage is constructed, he's using the Greeks as a hinge to remind us before Jesus goes on that salvation was for the Gentiles too. 
It was for the language of John 1, for anyone who would believe. Or John 3, for whoever, for Samaritans or Greeks or Gentiles of any stripe or persuasion, salvation was for everyone. And that seems to be part of what he's getting at here. Jesus' response to this, Greeks want to see you. And the phrase is great, isn't it, by the way? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Um, We wish to see Jesus. What a polite uh, but important request. We want to see Jesus. We've got a song that uses that phrase. We want to see Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It doesn't say if he talked to them. We don't know if they hear anything that he says here. We don't know what physically this looked like. Are they standing as close as uh, this theater? Do they hear what Jesus says to Philip and Andrew? Or do they never see him face to face? Do they never hear what he says? We don't know for sure. The request, though, triggers this theological response from Jesus that follows. By the way, again, when he says the Son of Man glorified, he's talking about death, death and resurrection. The Son of God's glory is his death and resurrection. This leads, though, to this trio of verses, which is where we'll spend the balance of our time. The trio of verses 24 through 26, which is the point Jesus wants to get across here. Just before his death, Jews and Gentiles together. What's important? This is the deal. In verse 24, which we'll reread here one at a time, Jesus gives a principle of life on earth. He just tells, he states a general principle of life on earth. This is the way life is on planet earth. In verse 25, he applies that same principle from nature. He applies that principle to man. And then in verse 26, he applies it specifically to himself. So it's all about the same thing. All about the same thing. Verse 24, Jesus started with that truly, truly, or you can count on it. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus says in nature, take a a single kernel of grain, a grain of uh, wheat in this case. It could be barley or rice or anything else. Take a single grain, hold it in your hand, and what happens to it? Nothing. It's It's a grain of wheat. That's what you've got. Put on your shelf, put it in a bowl, protect it any way you want. What do you have? You always have the single grain. You've got a grain of wheat. That's what you've got. So take that one grain of wheat, hold on to it, protect it, do anything you want with it without destroying it, and you've got a grain of wheat. No more and no less. But he says, if you take that same grain of wheat, and if instead of protecting it, if you'll bury it in that dirty soil out back, then something will happen. The elements will act on it, you know, the rain and the sun, the soil, its outer shell will get worn away and deteriorated. And that single grain of wheat you plant in the ground in the dirt, it'll die. But then something will happen. It will come to new life because in its death it'll spring up a new plant. And that plant, given enough time, by the end of the summer, it will be filled with more grains of wheat. So that one grain, if it dies in the ground, it will really die, but it will reproduce itself hundreds of time over. So Jesus says, in nature, this is the thing. Take that grain of wheat, hold on to it. What have you got? A grain of wheat. But if you'll plant it, if you'll bring about its death, it will reproduce itself multiplied times over. But it's got to die to do it. 
Verse 25. He takes that principle from nature. Death brings life. And he applies it to us. The person who loves his life loses it. You're the grain of wheat on the shelf. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. That's the grain of wheat, the person buried in the ground in death, so to speak. Let me develop this just a bit. If the person saves their life, they don't die, they have their life, sort of. They maintain status quo. They maintain what they have, or think they have, for a while, anyway. Or a person can invest their life in a way that looks like death, and might really be death, too. But instead of just getting death, something happens in which that death triggers life. Life comes from this death. Life goes on and reproduces itself. There's more life than there was before. When you read this verse, we're reading life three times in English, but we're converting two Greek terms. So if we read the Greek terms, we say, he who loves his suke, which normally would be uh, translated soul. He who loves his soul, his suke, loses it. He who hates his suke, soul, in this world will keep it to zoe, life eternal, ionian. We looked at these phrases before, life eternal in John 11. Jesus says, he who loves his soul, loses it. He who hates his soul, gains it and gets life that lasts forever. And the thought is this. Your soul is your desires. It's what you want, naturally. It's your passions, maybe. Uh, It's things that you think are rightfully yours, or things that you think you ought to be able to do, or to get, or to avoid. That's what your soul here represents, your life. He who keeps his life, he who keeps his soul, he who keeps control of his desires, who gets what he wants, avoids what he doesn't want, puts himself first, Jesus says here he's going to lose his life. Losing his life means, or hating his life actually in the phrase Jesus says, does not mean being a masochist. Hating your soul doesn't mean that you're somehow out to subvert what's, what's inherently in your best interest. It doesn't mean that you hate yourself, but it does mean in the language of the scriptures that you love God in this context, that you prefer Christ above yourself. You remember Jesus has used the same language in other contexts. That compared to loving God, anything else we have should be as distinct as hate. That nothing should compare with our love for God. So Jesus says here, for the one who loves God and puts God's things, God's interests above his own, he hates his life, he hates his soul, he sets it aside in death as it were, but in the end he actually gets life like that grain of wheat. Now, in the context of this story in John 12, the religious leaders, they're the grain of wheat that love their life and save it. Does this make sense? The the high priest, the Sanhedrin, the folks who are plotting Jesus' murder, they're loving their soul. And do you remember in the story that's already taken place, what are they after? They want to maintain the status quo. 
because for them, they're leaders in Israel. They have a status and a position they enjoy. They want the nation to be protected. So things are just like they are because that's good enough. They're in positions of prominence. They've got the things that they consider important in life. They've laid hold of the things they consider important. They don't want anyone upsetting their apple cart. This is what they've already said in chapter 11. They hold on to their life. And in fact, if you think about it short term, they do save their life. They save their status quo, don't they? They save status quo because within the week, Jesus is crucified and the troublemaker from Galilee is gone. And then they persecute his followers after that, right? So status quo at some level is maintained. And what they want, the thing their soul wants, good to see you again. The thing they wanting to maintain, they do. Or do they? Because think of this. Some of these guys are young enough, they live for a few decades after this. What happens to Jerusalem in 70 AD? Titus, the Roman general, he destroys the city. And he destroys the nation. You know, it was illegal. Jerusalem was wiped clean. The Romans wanted to make a point of this. They wiped the city clean. They flattened it. It was illegal for Jews to live in Jerusalem. And when they finally allowed Jerusalem to be rebuilt, they called it Catalina, and Jews were forbidden from being in it. And you know that from 70 AD to 1948, there wasn't a nation of Israel. No nation. Some Jews did live there over the millennia, but there was no Jewish nation. In other words, short term, the priests that want to maintain status quo hold on to their life, they do. And they're successful to a point. But then everything they were trying to hold together, it's all gone. And it's not just a little gone, it's entirely gone. Because there's no Jerusalem, there's no Israel. And it's not like Babylonian captivity, 70 years sounds short. No, it's for over 1,900 years. So did they really get life? No, they really didn't. They saved their life and they lost. Then think of this too. As far as we know, not all the Jewish leaders, because John tells us that some believe. Nicodemus believed. Joseph of Arimathea, important Jews that were among the leadership group, did believe. A few did believe, but not the ones who plotted his murder, apparently. As far as we know, they died without ever trusting Christ. And what does that mean for their future, for their eternity? They've rejected Israel's Messiah. They've rejected the Prince of Peace. They've rejected the one who says he is the way, the truth, and the life. They've got death. You see, they saved their soul. They got what they wanted. If you talk to them today, would they say that they got what they wanted? Maybe not. The disciples, on the other hand, they lost their lives. And even think of this in the gospel story context. Jesus comes along to these guys in their fishing boats. And he says, hey, come follow me. And they do. And they leave their nets and their livelihood and their father. Peter says later, Jesus, we've left our families and our homes. They left everything. They left respectability. They left a good income, Matthew the tax collector. You see, they didn't save their life. They lost it. They put it aside. They hated their soul, so to speak, in the language of Jesus here. But did they lose? Did they really lose their life? Well, 
again, I, I don't want to minimize the degree to which they, they did lose. It was difficult. They were persecuted. Remember what happened to most of this, these disciples, the apostles. Besides John, as we understand from history, they're all martyred. So there, was, there were some real losses. But think of this. They got life, the experience of life, in their days, however few or long those were on the earth, they got life while they were here. Because do you remember Jesus said in John 7, those who believe in me, I'll give them a life that's so abundant, it'll be like they've got a well inside them that springs up and overflows. Jesus said he was the one who qualitatively was life. And they got the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. You remember the Spirit comes and they get the Spirit. They get life from the inside out. And so their days on the earth, whether they were few or long, are filled with the experience of life because they know Christ, their personal relationship with Jesus, the experience of the Holy Spirit. They got life in their days on the earth, even if they were tough times, and some of them were. But also, what about their future? You know, these guys who left their homes and their families at times, their livelihood, their respectability, probably all the things in life they dreamed of, hoped for, they'd left them all behind. What do they get in the future? Jesus says, guys, you know, these were nobodies in Israel. I mean, the fishermen. Matthew might have been known locally because he collected taxes. These were nobodies in Israel nationally. They were from the wrong side of the tracks. The north part of Israel was despised. They had the wrong accent. They weren't wealthy. But they left their little dreams of life behind. And what did Jesus tell them they'd get? He said, guys, I'm going to put you on 12 thrones. You're going to judge Israel forever. So in eternity, by the way, you know, when you get to the new Jerusalem, you and I will see their names, won't we? Their names are immortalized on the new Jerusalem, John tells us in Revelation. We've got gates and the city, the foundation stones, named for the apostles and for the tribes of Israel. These guys are immortalized forever. They lost their life. They hated their soul. They set their desires aside. They died like the kernel of wheat, and they got life. They got life in time, and they've got this honor forever which Jesus talks about in that last verse. In verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Remember in context, Jesus is first talking about himself. Jesus is the grain of wheat. Jesus is the one who, in just verses from where we're at this morning, we'll look at next week, Jesus says to the Father, hey, if there's a way around this, can we take that instead? Just like in the Garden of Gethsemane later when Jesus says, Lord, I'd really like to let this thing go right on by. In other words, Jesus as a man on earth says, if I had my druthers, if I got what I wanted, if I held on to my soul and my desires, I wouldn't die on that cross. But I'm like a grain of wheat. And I'm going to be planted in the ground in death. And I know that life is going to come from it. That out of my death will come resurrection both for me and then life for Jews and Gentiles. Then and now. Jesus is preeminently the grain of wheat. And he's telling them again, I'm going to die. But out of that death comes resurrection and life. 
If Jesus held on to his soul, you and I wouldn't have life. And he would be out in the sense, in the kind of honor God wanted to heap, the Father wanted to heap on him. So first, Jesus says he's the grain of wheat. But then he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And if you remember the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, perhaps his most famous, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's exactly what Jesus says here. He says, if you're going to follow me, that's great. And this is what it means. Those who follow me have to do the things I do. And that means if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to die. I'm like a grain of wheat that's going to be planted in the ground. And if you follow me, you'll have to be a grain of wheat. Not hidden on the shelf, not put up and preserved, not maintained, sterile by itself. You're going to have to suffer death in your own life to follow me. You're going to have to say no to the things you thought you really wanted to follow me. And out of what looks like death, and sometimes really is death, Jesus says you'll get life. You know the newspapers are full today of stories about men primarily who saved their souls and lost their lives. In fact, this, this strikes close to home, doesn't it? I'm thinking of uh, Enron and West Star. And I'm thinking of guys who are in court because they lied and they cheated and they stole people's money, white-collar crime, because they wanted to preserve status quo because they had a nice position. They made hundreds of millions of dollars, many of them, and wanted a few million more. They were trying to preserve the status quo even when their businesses weren't doing it, and so they lied and they cheated. And out of this lying and cheated, they stole money that didn't belong to them. And they're in the courts today, and if you look on the Internet or read the newspapers, these are the headlines. This is going on today. And there's other guys in prison today, guys from Topeka, Kansas, in prison for doing the same thing. They held on to their life. They loved their soul. They were going to get what they wanted, and they did for a time. And then they died, and they're dying. They saved their souls, and they lost. Saved their souls, lost their lives. On the other hand, there are Christians today, still today, who accept challenges to do things like uh, become missionaries. I'm thinking of this particularly but who successful people who put careers and, and soft, cushy lives on hold and choose to go out to some place less comfortable so that somebody who doesn't know about Christ yet can. People who say no to the natural inclinations for comfort and success in this life because they believe they need to do so to honor Christ. That's what the cost is. This isn't a recent recent, but you know, 50 years ago, a film came out just not long ago called The End of the Spear about a well-known group of Christians, uh, Jim Elliott being the most famous, best known by name. And these, these guys, they weren't wealthy, but if you think about it, they were well-to-do. They were sharp, academically astute, worldly successful college graduates who had a promising career ahead of them in the United States if they wanted it. And you know, at some level, clearly, all of us seek creature comforts. All of us want some of these things. But they said no to that 
because they believed God had called them to go share the gospel with a group of people who'd never heard it in South America. So they traded the potential comfort of a cushy life here in the States for the heat and the humidity and the flies and the dirty conditions of a little corner of the jungle in South America to share the message of Christ with people who'd never heard it. And then, you know, you say, well, they lost their life in that sense. They said goodbye to their primary concerns or desires. And what happened? Of course, the people they went to save killed them. They died. They died. They were speared to death, all of them, in the river. I think if you guys know the story, they had guns with them. They could have defended themselves if they'd wanted to. But they'd agreed beforehand that they would not hurt anyone. They knew that... They knew the group, the tribe, was very, very violent. But they'd already decided that even if it meant death, they weren't going to shoot anyone from the tribe, and they didn't. They had guns with them and didn't use them. They could have saved their lives, and they didn't. They didn't hold on to their soul. They didn't even hold on to the natural instinct, so to speak, to preserve their own physical life. Uh, They were speared to death. What happened? What came of that? You know, today the truth is, People who murdered the missionaries are elders in the church in that same tribe today. In other words, out of the real, physical, literal death of those missionaries, the church was born. And by the way, those those guys, their wives and their children stayed down there. With the people who had killed their husbands, they stayed there. And those people did come to Christ, and there's a thriving church down there today. And some of the people, this is no different. This sounds terrible, even as I'm telling the story. This is Paul the Apostle. This is Paul at Stephen's death. We don't know if he threw stones, but we knew he was there. He had people imprisoned. He was the same kind of thing. And Jesus converts him, and he becomes a missionary himself. This is the same thing. These, these capable, competent guys who could have had a cushy life, they went down to share in a, in a difficult place and they died, literally died. And out of that, of course, they've got eternal life, but out of that life came to this corner of the world too. The truth is, for most of us, we're not going to be missionaries around the world. Most of us are not called to go some other corner, you know, and share the gospel elsewhere. Uh, frankly, most of this is more mundane than that. Uh, And unfortunately, it feels less glorious at the time. So, you know, in my mind, I'm going through things. What does this mean to hate my soul or my desires? What does it mean to say no to my desires, to say yes to Christ? Now, some of the things I thought of is, it could mean that I get up in the middle of the night with the baby or the sick child instead of staying in bed. I mean, this is one of the things I could think of. Close to home, mundane, doesn't appear very glorious. Say no to my own desire to say yes to Christ. Or it might mean working at a friend's house on your day off when you could have been reading the paper, comfortable at home with the coffee instead. Not not that glorious, but it's the same principle. Or it could mean giving financially funds away to some work or person you believe Christ wants to support when you could have used that money and got some nicer meals, nicer car, bigger house, whatever. In my mind, even if we're not called to be missionaries, the truth is there's a million and one ways in which Christ calls us to die to ourselves. And by the way, I don't know what this looks like for any of us. We can think of examples, and it's important to say 
what that means for you or, or me. It's important to apply it. And to apply it, we have to know, what does that mean for me? But I guarantee you, you'll find in life, you're going to have things you really want to do, and you're going to know that Christ is saying no to that thing. Or you really want to avoid something, and Christ is requiring you to be involved anyway. And you're faced with the decision. You're faced with the decision to be a grain of wheat, saving your life on the shelf, or to say yes to death, to hate your own soul, to say no to your own desires so that you can say yes to Christ. And frankly, this is where faith comes in. If I really believe Jesus is who he says he is, even if I feel like he's really cramping my style, if I believe who he says he is and what he says is true, then I can make that tough decision to say no to my own desires because I know that what he said will happen, that I'll die to some desire or I'll suffer something that's a loss that might be a real and a difficult loss to bear, but that out of that, out of that loss, out of that denial will come real life. And remember this, the death, the death that's suffered is this big, say this big, the kernel of wheat, the grain that dies, it's little. But what gets reproduced out of the death, it's much, much bigger than what you planted. Do you know what I mean? So the disciples, they leave their little fishing trade. They're losers from Galilee. But their fishing trade's important to them, and they leave their little fishing trade behind, and they're made kings of the nation for eternity. Do you see what I mean? This is the thought, that the death you suffer, it's real. I don't mean to minimize it, it's real. But compared to the life that you get, it's nothing. There's this multiplication factor that God takes into account. So the little thing you give up, it produces this big thing produces much more than we plan. We gain much more than we lose. Jesus says in the end, if we save our souls, we lose our life. If we save our souls, we lose our life. By the way, I forgot to say Jim Elliott's famous phrase, he's no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. You know, the Pharisees... They held on to what they couldn't keep. And they lost what they couldn't, they, they never got what they wouldn't have been able to lose otherwise. Jim Elliott said, you're not a fool when you give up what you can't keep. You, you and I, we can't keep health. We can't keep wealth. We can't keep status quo. Whatever it is that you want to hold on to or want to avoid, it's fading anyway. You're, you're never in control anyway. So in Jim Elliott's word, you give up what you can't keep but you're gaining something that can't be lost. The disciples got something that could never be lost. You and I gain something that can never be lost when we're willing to say, we'll die to that thing we desire. We're willing to die to our own soul. We gain our life. We die on one hand, we live on the other. In the end, whether we're Jewish or Gentile, we need to choose, it's it's in our best interest, to choose to be the grain of wheat with Christ, following Christ. We die to what we think we want to gain something that we can't lose. We plant a little seed that dies in the ground and we get this big harvest. We say no to the little things in life we think are so important to gain honor 
we can't even imagine. You remember we've said before, the Father loves to honor the Son. The Son loves to honor the Father. We enter that equation when we die to our own desires so that the Father, Jesus closes by saying, the Father will honor Him. We don't know what that looks like. But the little death is going to produce great honor. So the little deaths we experience in life, God the Father is going to heap honor on us out of all proportion to the size of what we deny ourselves here. So we can save our life and lose it. Or we can voluntarily lose our life, lose our soul, and gain our life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, those folks back in your day saw Lazarus raised from the dead and they believed in you. They believed in you. That was the bottom line. I pray that you'd give us the eyes of faith to remember that when we're faced with these problems or challenges in which we want to hold on to something we desire or want to avoid something you're requiring of us, Lord, help us to remember through the eyes of faith that you can't lie, that when we die to our own desires, you promise life. You promise honor out of death. Lord, help us to be willing to follow Jesus, that grain of wheat planted in the soil. It's tough. It's abrasive. It doesn't feel good, Lord. But remembering that your words are true and that when we die to ourselves, we live again. I pray that that principle of resurrection life would be in each one of our lives, Lord, because we're trusting you. We're dying to ourselves and we're living to you. In Jesus' name, amen.